0: Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our oftentimes messy ministries. Of course, I'm your host, Brad Gray. And this is episode number 30. And on today's show, I'm just thrilled to be joined once again by my dear brother in Christ, Abhi, Tyler, Todd. This is Abhi's third time as a guest on the show, Uh, going for the three-peat here, I guess. I'm so grateful for his friendship, though, and his influence on me and his insight into ministry. Uh, Abhi is a dear brother, a dear fellow pastor friend. And um, as somewhat of a follow-up to our previous show together, in which we um, delved into the historical misconceptions surrounding uh, the reformer Martin Luther, this time we're going to take another deep dive into the life and ministry of another great reformer, this time that being John Calvin. Uh, We're going to talk about Calvin, talk about the misconceptions surrounding Calvin and Calvinism, and uh, we are aiming in this conversation to somewhat dismember, I would say, the uh, common stigmas associated with Calvin and Calvinism, as well as attempt to restore, I would say, the conventional understanding of Calvin's pastoral heart. You know, Calvin was a pastor, and that has to shine through. And um, This was such a fun episode to record. Uh, we recorded it a few months back and I know you're going to greatly benefit from this show and I think you're going to be enriched by what we talk about as we seek to pay homage to one of the most revered reformers and just his life of scripture and I would say self-denial. So uh, enjoy, sit back, uh, drink some coffee and enjoy this episode. Uh, before we begin, today's show of course is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. I'm so thankful to be partnered with them and what they're trying to do with that translation. The Christian Standard Bible offers up an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which inspires lifelong discipleship and helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word. To find out more about the Christian Standard Bible, go to csbible.com. I love the CSB. I use it on my blog. And uh, I hope you will avail yourself of that awesome translation of Scripture. Um, Now, though, for Avi Todd. Well thank you, Abi. Thanks for joining me again tonight. I know it's uh had a long day and I have as well, but I'm glad you're here and how are you? How is uh the Church of Haines Creek doing?
1: The Church of Haines Creek is doing well and you, we were blessed to have you uh visit us about a month ago.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> I, the I just still cannot get over the fact that we I preached on the very text from which you named your blog. (laughs) It was very serendipitous. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it was grace upon grace, my friend. So it was, it was was actually a very uh, momentous weekend for us because yes, uh, Haynes Creek, you know, a church of about 70, 75 people, um, you know, hosted a conference on race racial unity in our, in our community. We had, uh, 100, 120, 120, 125 people. Um, and, uh, and then of course you came, of course you were there at the, for the bigger conference G3. Mm.
2: Um,
1: but, um, yeah, man, we're, our churches, um, we are blessed by God in the right way. That's and awesome. that is, we are, we have consistent preaching of God's word. We have people who value God's word. We have active, consistent, um close knit discipleship um and uh our our outreach is becoming an extension of our discipleship which is uh I feel like a good a good the best way that it can be um mm. and so we're having tomorrow night we're having our first town hall meeting which is mm. uh in the Baptist world is, is valuable because we got to let those democratic wheels turn. Um, <laughs> right. We got to, we got to let our, our, um, you know, our local body, let our voices be heard in the right way in a respectful and loving way. Um, and I, as the shepherd of Haynes Creek needs to really, I, I have to make sure that we're um, staying free enough to uh, seek the counsel of the spirit and allow Him to search our hearts and to guide us, but also allow the Spirit to establish um, structures and forms that can help us to communicate the gospel both to one another in our church and to other people. Mm. Um, that's something I've been convicted about this week. Was that the Holy? We often think the Holy Spirit is just some simultaneous force that He only works in uh, rapid fire, um, mm. but I feel like the Holy Spirit uh, also desires planning. Uh, he he desires us to be intentional, um, yes. and he's not just a someone to be called upon at a moment's notice. He's
2: yeah.
1: he's someone who uh, desires um, biblical longevity and steady discipleship and intentionality. Um, yes. and so that that's really where we're we're at as a church right now. Is we we one of our from just from a from an X's and O standpoint, one of our biggest strengths is our leaders. Um, we just, i God has just blessed Haines Creek with godly leaders of all different kinds and, mm. uh, men, women, um, we're establishing our fourth small group here this spring. Uh, we've got a guy who wants to help start that, which is a big commitment. Cause you both got to open up your home and also open up your time and, Um, and we also have other things like, you know, establishing a men's ministry. You know, we, we want to have like something like, I think we've thrown around the idea of having manhood, man Mondays, (laughs) um, you know, um, maybe we have like a fire going and I don't know. It's, I heard somebody in Atlanta's got one they have a rule that you can't have anything. You can't have any meeting amongst men at his church unless there are three things. And that's red meat, fire, and a Bible. (laughs) <laughs> um, so I'm, I might be rip, I might be ripping off his ideas. Anyway, <laughs> that sounds like a good meeting to me. That's right. So anyway, God's God's blessing Haines Creek, but we've got a lot of room in front of us. Tomorrow we're seeing our second baptism. Awesome. Um, and uh, we it looks to be as if I'm meeting Monday for uh, perhaps um, a couple more. So um, the harvest the the fields are white for harvest, and um, we're being obedient and, and trying to to walk uh, in the light. That's awesome. It was so good to see you uh, a couple of weeks ago.
0: And I just, I, I do have to say I had a, an amazing time at your, at the church of Haines Creek and uh, it was a blessing. And I know that God is blessing your ministry and uh, he's definitely blessing your church. And uh, which is very exciting to hear. Um,
1: I know also, we are. I'm going to tell you this for real quick, quick, man. Yeah. My preaching was better um, because I had you in the front. <laughs> Feeding me amens, man. You oh. were my one man amen corner, and I'm just gotta tell you, I think the preaching was better because the the mojo was flowing from your end of the room.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. Did your iPhone <laughs> pick it up when you were recording it?
1: I I heard you. I heard you a couple times. That's right. You you saw how ragtag we are, man. We don't need a sound booth in the back. We uh, just got an iPhone. So
0: what out your iPhone and you hit that voice recording. That's right, man. So no, that was a blessing. I was truly blessed. And um, I hope what we talk about tonight is a blessing to some of those. I know we're a little bit late on this whole sort of, you know, Reformation celebration thing. Uh, We've previously talked about Martin Luther and sort of the misconceptions regarding him and his ministry and his sort of history. I'd like to do the same thing tonight, except with a different reformer. uh, One who I would say is, well, I don't know if he's more, or if he's less controversial, but it's uh, John Calvin. Uh, I know that there's a lot of there's a lot of things that come into someone's head. I think when someone says Calvin, uh, immediately it can spark a lot of debate. It can spark a lot of conversation. And it can spark a lot of questions, even. And uh, so I hope tonight we can sort of uh, discuss some of those things, and hopefully we can come to some sort of I don't know about conclusion on the matter, but we can at least uh, talk about some of these issues. At hand, um, right off the bat, just a really general question to sort of get the conversation going is what is do you think the you know maybe the perhaps the greatest or perhaps the most misunderstood thing
1: regarding Calvin and his ministry? I knew you would ask that because <laughs> it 's a good question, um, and it's also a good question because misconceptions abound. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Calvin has determined the course of church history and, dare I say, human history um, more than, um, I mean, unlike really any other person in in, in the world um, in his own unique way. Now, of course, you could say, you know, you could say Augustine and Luther were probably the most, um, you know, monumental uh, mm-hmm. Just in in basically the tectonic shifts that took place in church history, and I and I would agree with that. <clears throat> uh, but Calvin, John Calvin was a biblicist. Mm. Uh, if you read John Calvin, and, and and that's important to start with, is just read John Calvin. Just <laughs> read read him. Buy a commentary and read him, and tell me. That that man is not committed to sola scriptura, both in principle and in practice. Um, hmm. I mean, that is the formative principle. He just he really sticks to scripture in a way that, when you read him, you go, "Okay, this is why he shaped the church in the way that he did. This is why his uh, his teachings have endured." And It's really because he, uh, in fact, his institutes. Uh, that he you know, in the many versions that they uh, in, the, in reprintings that he that came out, uh, the institutes in Calvin's mind were designed to merely supplement and support his commentaries hmm. um, and, and so I would dare say that the biggest <clears throat> the biggest m- misrepresentation of John Calvin is that he is this scholastic, philosophizing intellectual whose head is so above the clouds that he never really just got down to business and got down to the Bible. That is is so removed from reality. Um, And the reason is because, like so many in in the the course of church history, we judge a man by his descendants and his spiritual uh, children, so to speak. We judge a man by his disciples. Uh, we judge people who uh, bear the name. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, for, for instance, I mean, the man who was who just, you know, I'm sorry. I had to bring up Edwards in the podcast <laughs> already. How, how long have we been going? Edwards is here already. That's yeah, a tradition. Oh, uh, I know. Um, OK, obligatory Edwards reference check. Um, <laughs> you know, Edwards, for instance, I mean, he was he was vilified because of the new divinity and, and Samuel Hopkins and Joseph Bellamy um, Luther. You know he was he he was kind of jaded in his legacy because Melanchthon, of course, started to veer our, in an Armenian direction. Um, and Calvin, you know, Theodore Beza, who is you know someone who really took off with the with uh, the decrees of God and really took off with uh, starting to uh, he even really built built a diagram and a graph, so to speak, of the decrees of God and the reprobate, those who went went to hell and. Um, And so I think a lot of people have taken that and gone, okay. when Calvin must be, you know, that Calvinist down the road, I know, is just a jerk. So John Calvin must have been worse. Um, And so I think that's the reason people think that he that Calvin was just some dogmatic academic Hmm. sitting up in an an intellectual ivory tower uh, who wrote his books now. Of course, there is a little bit of truth to that in the sense that John Calvin said on multiple occasions that he really just wanted he'd be happy and content just to read and write his whole life. Hmm. Um, but he actually said that one time in a in a in a letters talking about how God called him to come back to Geneva to lead and pastor that city. He actually denied his own fleshly desire to study, um, and uh, and write. Uh, kind of uh, on an island, so to speak, and he actually denied that that impulse and, and obeyed God's call to come back after he was banished to Geneva, came back to Geneva, um, and, of course, uh, led, uh, led that city for many years. Um, but anyway, I think the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest uh, misconception to answer your question about John Calvin would be the fact that he was not a biblicist um, because, in fact, anyone who reads the Institutes, anyone who reads his commentaries will find out very quickly uh, that the man was committed to Scripture, um, regardless of whether you agree with his conclusions or not. Um, John Calvin was a theologian who was absolutely saturated and fixed with the idea that that Scripture was the basis for all of our theological conclusions. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, I actually have a, nice, a neat little story here. I took Theology of the Reformers' Uh, the New Orleans uh, Baptist Seminary where I go to seminary and uh, my doctoral supervisor, Adam Harwood, was actually co-teaching. And I remember during the class that uh, Dr. Harwood, who is not a Calvinist, I think you would want me to uh, include that um, by far. I mean, by by a long shot, uh, Dr. Harwood is not a Calvinist. Um, he's actually a framer of the traditional statement for Baptists. He's someone who's probably very critical of John Calvin's soteriology. Even during the course of the class, I think I vividly remember uh, Dr. Harwood stopping in the middle of class and saying, "Man, some of this stuff is really good." Um, and that's somebody who is not a Calvinist. Hmm. Um, so I think we'd be greatly aided um, to kind of, um, kind of. Swim through all the historiographical garbage and uh, just get hear the man on his own terms. Mm. Um, and I and I can't help but also we'll get into this later. But one of my favorite things for um, you know Calvin is uh, his analogy of of the Bible as spectacles. He loved that analogy. Mm. He said the Bible helps us see God clearer. Mm. Uh, he treated the Bible as if they were glasses uh, mm. that we needed to put on because our vision. Natural revelation has 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 is not sufficient to know uh, who God is. It is sufficient to know that God is that He exists, but it is not sufficient to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, and so, anyway, I thought that, that I think that is probably one thing that would help people with John Calvin for uh, sure. So,
0: uh, it's funny you should mention sort of this, because <clears throat> I think you're right. I think there's this sort of um, mindset that we come in with when we approach something, someone who says they're a Calvinist or approaching Calvin himself in his writings is it's all academia related. And I think there's also this notion um, that Calvin for all intents and purposes was a stoic (laughs) nature. And um, because, you know, if you just, (laughs) it just reading him, there's, it seems that there's not as much, you know, emotion or humanity in his writings, uh, at least not nearly as much as Luther, which I think oh, we no. mentioned, uh, which is why I think Luther was maybe more, he, he caught fire, I guess you could say. Uh, but I, and it's funny when I was doing research for this, for this podcast, I came across this early 20th century sort of like a publication, like magazine, like review article. And it literally stated, um, that Calvin had, no emotion and little imagination. Mm-hmm. And I uh I chuckle at that because I think just like you were saying in Calvin's call back to Geneva, I think what we forget is that Calvin was a first and foremost he was a pastor. Yes, and I think that we think <laughs> that he was an academic scholar. Uh, more than he was a pastor and of course his writing is very scholastic but um, I think we need to remember that Calvin was a pastor with a pastor's heart and he, yes, he was. had a lot of emotion maybe he didn't put it in his writing but he was very I think in touch with where people were mm-hmm. uh, and I think I don't know what What can you I mean, that's not a good question but what, can you speak to that though uh, this yeah. sort of stoicism of Calvin?
1: <laughs> well, um, I think it's interesting to note that John Calvin's uh, Ph.D. dissertation um, or what would be the equivalent of a Ph.D. dissertation uh, when he studied in France, uh, which is of course where he's from um, it was on the Stoic philosopher Seneca. Mm. Um, but of course he was very um, John Calvin was very conversant with church fathers, uh, for exe- uh, for instance, like uh, um, Cyprian. Um, you know, John Calvin was very conversant with him. He was very conversant with, uh, with Greek um, thinkers. Um, so he was also very uh, keen to separate himself from Stoic um, philosophers who would uh, more or less treat uh, the goings on of humanity, as if we were just mechanical um, robots who were hmm. just who were just going and acting as if we didn't have any kind of human agency. I think uh, uh, John Calvin pushed back on that uh, pretty significantly. Also, I think that there's another. There is some validity, you know. For example, that guy that you were talking to said that he didn't have. Uh, now I don't know. If, I don't know if you if you quoted him verbatim or not, but you know, I would. I would parse out what you said. He he said no, did he say no personality and creativity? He said, well, because I would I he would have no emotion and little imagination. Okay. Well, this is what I would say. I would say that there is some there is some validity to at least in my opinion that of the fact that he had little emotion. I do think there is some validity to that and I'll explain why. But I will so, I also push back heavily on the fact that he didn't have any imagination. I mean, my goodness. Uh, the, man's, the man's writings are chock full. He was a teacher. He was a teacher. I mean, he, he spoke uh, several times, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times about how to break into the human mind uh, and to convince people of their need of a savior um now I, I will and we'll we'll touch that later, but to the to the uh you know to the emotion part. Um only once did John Calvin ever care to share his own conversion story. Um sure. I I think and I wrote about that for uh, the Gospel Coalition uh in, in their journal. Um I and what what I wrote on it was I thought it was very significant because I do think it speaks to how reticent Calvin was to speak about himself. Um, so, you know, and I think, I think he he only mentions his conversion in the preface to the Psalms, uh, and he speaks to it very briefly. Uh, and I think you have a good point, Brad, of pointing, I mean, look at how different he is with Martin Luther. Mm. I mean, Martin Luther is narrating his own flatulence. Um, (laughs) and here we have John Calvin who can't be bothered to even really expand on his own conversion. Mm. Uh, We know all about John. We all know, we know all about Martin Luther's conversion. Uh, we know about the, the 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 lightning almost hitting him. You know, uh, we know about him praying to Saint Anne. Uh, you know, if you save me, you know, I'll 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 uh, I'll go into the ministry. Um, you know, we we know that story. We know everything about Luther because Luther's Luther's theology was so existential. It was so connected. We talked about this in the last last podcast. Uh, his theology was never detached from his own life. Mm -hmm. And so he was almost incapable of talking about theology without without mixing in his own uh, emotions and his own story. John Calvin, on the other hand, is someone who, at the end of his life, he insisted on being buried in an unmarked grave. Mm. To this day in Geneva, he's buried in an unmarked grave. Um, now, I, th- I believe that they know where he was buried, I think. Um, but that just gives you a lot of sense about this man and his personality. Another thing that he didn't talk a lot about that I really is, is to me is one of the most vivid contrasts with, with, a, with, with a figure such as Martin Luther is the way that they talked about their marriages. Um, John Calvin, uh, it's been said by many historians that John Calvin you know, lived probably a very loveless marriage. And I think that has to be qualified uh, it doesn't mean that he didn't share passion with the woman they did she did conceive uh, to one child I believe and and, and he died um, so there wasn't a lot of uh, you know with with Luther you know he's talking about uh, marrying this former nun and he's cool. talking about how I mean everything under the sun what he talk he loves this woman Catherine of I forgot her name um. But, you know, he had, I mean, you could just tell that Luther loved his wife and that they had joy. With with Calvin, you don't really uh, get a sense that he really wants to discuss his personal life as much. And and really, I think that's for two reasons, because um, the job of the historian is not to just broad brush history and figures and just make them into little cookie cutter figures that fit how we want to tell history. I think that the story of John Calvin is the fact that, yes, he wasn't prone to being the flamboyant figure that Martin Luther was. Um, and there is some validity to the fact that, yes, he was very reticent uh, to discuss his own personal life. He, was, he got very sick. I think he was in some sense a very sickly person. But I also think that that's part of his theology was that he felt his the best way to move people and to teach people and to pastor them was not to point to himself but to point to God. Mm. Uh, and to point to the Bible, I think that is also pretty important. I don't think it was just his personality. I think that John Calvin, I mean, just the the Institutes begin. The very first page of the Institutes begins uh, with the idea that there are two, there are two kinds of knowledge: knowledge of God and knowledge of self. Um, that is fundamental to the entire foundation of the Institutes, um, and if you really follow that in his own in his own theology, you'll come to the, to the conclusion that he really believed that we only really truly know ourselves if we know God. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that it's, I think that there's validity on both sides that he was a very, um, some people think he was misanthropic and uh, meaning he just, you know, he's kind of like the Grinch. He's like, you know, don't mess up, don't mess with me. I just leave me be with my books. Uh, that's just completely not true. He was, as yeah. you said, he was a pastor. Um, he dealt a lot with people. In fact, he was often seen in Geneva as an outsider. He dealt a lot with the bourgeois class. People in Geneva, there were a class of people that never liked him uh, because they saw him as a as an immigrant. He was not native to Geneva. He was a Frenchman. Uh, people they you know, Geneva under his under his leadership, took in tons of uh of, of French immigrants, of course, from Catholic persecution. Uh, they sent in missionaries, um, and so he was a missional person. He also endured a lot of persecution. Um, there were people who hated him, um, and of course, at that time, Geneva just both, both geographically in the mountains, was well suited to fend off people to sit there and, 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 and um, you know, be uh, a safe distance from some of these hostile countries. But also, there were even uh, provincial rivalries as like bern bern was a was a city state uh, in in the swiss swiss alps uh, region and of course they had a much different take on church polity and some in, in other political issues and so he fought with them as well he was someone who was spent i mean he spent so much of his time and his life and his ministry dealing with with people's problems there's no way you can say he just sat up there and didn't deal with people the consistory so to speak Ah, uh, the consistory was a group of of leaders that that helped him uh, lead the city. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't the pope. He wasn't an autocrat. Uh, he was a very powerful man, and he did rule Geneva in some sense. But he wasn't a dictator. Um, and so I think that's uh, his ability to distance himself and to study and to write is what made him. Uh, the monumental figure he was in church history and to leave us with such a vast corpus of writings, but it wasn't, it's very, very um, wrong to paint him as someone who lacked uh, creativity, imagination. That's just not true. That person obviously hasn't read John Calvin and you obviously have not read about his life. I mean, my goodness, you could tell without even reading his writings, you could just read about his life and write about how he was on the run. People wanted to kill him. Um, and and he's, he lived an interesting life. Um, but anyway, I, just to kind of put a close on that thought, I, I think there is some validity to the fact that he didn't have a lot of emotion, um, but that's only because we're used to, if we're comparing him to Martin Luther, then my goodness, none of us have emotion. <laughs> Very true. Um, and I, I think
0: you're, you're so on point when you're talking about, you don't even have to like necessarily read uh, all of Calvin's commentaries or anything. You can just read about his life and know, that there was a lot of creativity that went into his writings just by reading his life and reading some of the things that happened to him. Um, but also the fact, um, just the very fact that his institutes, I think were first published, I think when he was about 36 or something like that. And he, he was a very young man. Um, yeah, he wrote them. And so, uh, I I wish I could be on that level when I'm 30, (laughs) um, but I don't, I have a long way to go. So, um, I think um, one thing that I do want to uh, sort of mention and talk about is, because uh, to be honest with you, I did not know much about Calvin's life until I did a lot of research for this podcast, and I, get, I would say I still don't, um, but I would, I did not know about this, this uh, there's this issue that people like to call the servetus problem, I believe is how you Servetus. Servetus. Yeah. Sure, let's go with that. <laughs> um, there's this, I guess, confusion or there's controversy and to what role Calvin played in his execution. Um, mm. can you speak to this, Abby, or, or perhaps give us some insight into what you believe
1: about this? Hmm. Um, well, um. I wasn't there. So, um, uh, um, a buddy of mine was, I'm kidding. Um, there was, I think that we need to start, if we're going to properly understand Calvin, um, first of all, if we're going to even approach this subject, I think, you know, we're doing it. I think the best way to do it is, I think the way that you're doing it is trying to understand him and not just trying to, um, you know, trying to demonize him or try to find some grounds where we just need to, um, we need to undercut everything that he ever said because he did this. You know, this thing. Um, you know, but I, I do think we need to start with the uh, the truth. That is, Calvin did as the leader of Geneva. He did play a role in the um, in the burning of, uh, the heretic Servetus. Servetus denied the Trinity. That was not the only thing that he denied, but he was a heretic. Um, he, you know, he was a heretic in the most basic sense. Um, and what I mean by that is he wasn't just breaking Genevan laws, um, or Genevan beliefs. And of course he was a, um, he was a Unitarian. Um, he, he was breaking, um, he was, he was denying basic Orthodox beliefs, but, but also let's, let's, let's step back and go does anybody does anybody deserve to be burned at the stake for denying the trinity no um is was it can we can we look back now and see that uh the leaders in geneva uh were wrong and in error and in grievous sin because uh they burned him well yes absolutely they they you know they're they were held accountable for that um at judgment um you know, it's our hope that they were in and, and, and my belief that they that Calvin believed in Jesus and believed in the gospel and was forgiven of that sin um, and all of his sins. Uh, but I think it's also important to understand this. One, John Calvin's not the only one who wanted to burn Servetus. The Catholic Church was after him as well. Um, you know, he wasn't just it wasn't just I think it's often been posed as like as if it were like a Calvin versus Servetus uh, battle royale—that's that, that's just not true at all. Uh, you know, let's also uh, understand. Guess who else affirms the Trinity? The Catholic Church. Um, <laughs> it, and, and 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 I think also there's another. There's kind of a sense that we we read from our twenty-first century perspective. <laughs> we read this as, especially you and I being Baptists. I mean, we read this from a religious liberty standpoint. Like, oh my gosh, how uh, just appalling that is. And it was. Uh, but let's understand also that, one, the Enlightenment hasn't happened yet. Um, and you still have Christendom. And what I mean by Christendom is you have the, the the union of church and state. There is, other than the Anabaptists at that time and, and some other sects, uh, S-E-C-T-S, um, other than the Anabaptists and some other folks, maybe some Quakers at the time, um, you don't have... Uh, Any one touting anything anywhere near what we would conceive of as religious liberty at that time, mm. um, everything is. These are called the magisterial reformers, and what I, what that means, and that, and that includes John Calvin, that includes Ulrich Zwingli. Um, what we mean when we say they're the magisterial reformers is because they believed that um, they believed that the state had a role in the church. Um, it doesn't mean that they believed that the state was the church, because of course, of course Martin Luther wrote on the two kingdoms. Um, but we need to understand um, that in a medieval society, and these were men who lived in a medieval world, in a medieval society there the it is a common assumption that the state and the church would not be separate um, mm. and that's just assumption that they make, and so when you are a heretic, you must be punished by both the church and the state. Um, and so, I think that's important to understand. Most people understand that, but not a lot of people do sometimes. And I think that's just one thing we have to, um, you know, get out of the way. There. Also, I've heard people defend Calvin, like, well, you know, uh, Calvin wanted to behead him. Okay, he wanted to be sane about it. You know, as if that was like better or something. <laughs> um, uh, Calvin. And then I've heard people go, well, Calvin told him to stay away you know um that is kind of true uh, calvin told the guy to stay away calvin told him in fact at that time he was he was on the run from several places and calvin had put it out that this man came anywhere near he was going to be de- to geneva he was going to be detained and he came anyway it was a very very brazen act by servetus mm. um and so that doesn't excuse calvin of course um and then of course i think the last thing we need to understand is calvin did not make this decision unilaterally I believe as I have read that the uh, the leaders and the consistory and, and and the ecclesial figures in Geneva made the decision and Calvin approved of it um so Calvin is not exonerated from this in any way he is still culpable I don't know that I just think it's important to also understand that he didn't make the he didn't make the decision unilaterally um but then again, someone else could say, well, but yeah, but it, nothing's going to happen in Geneva without Calvin so on that magnitude. And I think they may be right on that. Um, so, yes, he, he's very he is he is culpable. Um, it is a you know, how many of our church figures, how many how many of our church history figures are, you know, how much of their legacies that they leave behind are not unstained mm-hmm. by one event or two or, or, or you know, I, and I'm not, again, I'm not defending the man. I'm just saying, uh, I mean, look what, look what Martin Luther wrote at the end of his life about Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look at Jonathan Edwards had a slave. Um, I mean, just, I mean, look at these men. I mean, look at James Pettigrew Boyce at Southern Baptist convention. I mean, the man took time during the war to go be a chaplain for this, the Confederate army. Uh, I mean, time and time again, God is showing us that um, some of the greatest minds and theologians that God has ever given us and given his church are still steeped in sin and are mired in it and are in dire need of a savior. Um, And so I think that the, the history of John Calvin, that the life of John Calvin is both a testament to incredible leadership an incredible biblical fidelity, uh, but I think it's also a testament to the fact that, my goodness, John Calvin needed Jesus just like we all did, hmm. um, and so I think there's, that's another misconception. Is people think that Calvinists venerate Calvin as a saint, and I just don't think that's true. Mm. I mean, there are some crazy people out there that really, <laughs> really love Calvin too much, um, but I think most of us understand that Calvin was a sinner, Uh, Um, and if we're really, really following the teachings of Calvin correctly, uh, then I think we would understand that.
0: I think that's a really good point to make. And I don't want to like go over ground because I feel like we, we, I think we talked about this when we talked about Luther, but it, I think it helps in this situation as well. Um, just because I think it also helps because I think you preached on this when I was uh, in Atlanta recently, it's just the fact that we, it, it is such an error to read, History through 21st century. Well, to use Lewis Calvin's word, spectacles. Um, it. <laughs> I think it just negates what was really going on uh, when you try and put in a 21st century ideology onto what was happening in the 1600 in the 1500s. Um, but I think your larger point is so um, valid, and it goes through every single person in, in human history is the fact that. Yes, we have these pinnacle people, these sort of people that, these figures that are on somewhat of pedestals in church history, and I would say human history, but what God does, I think, every single time is remind us that they are just flawed sinners like you and I. Uh, They're no different, they're not special in the sense that they are above the rest of mankind. Uh, God just chose to use them in a special way, but he reminds us that they are in need of the same cross that we are. And mm-hmm. I think that's refreshing. Uh, it's not that we... because as a denomination, uh, we don't have saints that we venerate above other people. We just have other brothers in Christ that God chose to use in other ways. And I mm-hmm. think that's kind of, that's kind of what I, I... as I read more in history, and I'm trying to be more of a historian, I have a long ways to catch up to you. Uh, but... <clears throat> I I feel like through it all, it's just, like you said, it's it's the history of sin, or the history of man is the history of sin and grace. And seeing all of that kind of infused in different people and in different ways, that's what makes history really come alive for me. Um, But it's amazing to see that in Calvin's life, because like you said, uh, most people venerate him and loft him to uh, a level, I think, that he would... Uh, be very ashamed of, I think, if he were realizing what people were um, uh, approaching him for and with (laughs) uh, in today's uh, Christianity, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I I think you're exactly right when you you say, you know, what would Calvin have thought? Um, I just, when I read Calvin and when I read about his life, um, there's a Got guy, T.H.L. Parker's book on Calvin. Uh, Selder Huise's book on Calvin. Bruce Gordon's book on Calvin. Um, Williston Walker's book on Calvin. I mean, all, all these books point to a man who was so... Fixed on being humble and hmm. self-denying, that he was almost self-deprecating. Um, he was almost misanthropic. Um, I, you know, he, he wasn't a stoic, but he was someone who um, I think lived very. I mean, he was constantly reminded. I, I really focused. I fixed on two things. If I if I'm really going to know. If I want to, if I want to hint about what this man was like uh, at the end of his life, uh, I think I think two things really stand out to me. One, the the fact that he wanted to be buried in an unmarked grave. I just, mm. I, I'm just struck by that. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, we know that's you know. I, I think someone could say and make an argument that he wanted, he didn't want to be uh, canonized as a saint. Um, I mean, that they kind of failed there because Geneva, you got the big old wall there with John Calvin. Um, but the other one was about the, the fact that his, I just came, I just keep coming back to his wife, uh, and his, 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 you know, the son that died. Um, and he just I I just can't help but think he had a hard personal life and it had Ooh. to be hard to be John Calvin's wife. I just, I don't know. I, I you know. I, there are bits and pieces of truth in every stereotype and every caricature. And I think there's something to John Calvin being um, just a little dry. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I I, I, I think John Calvin's great. Uh, I love reading John Calvin. Uh, but I think, you know, for instance, at, at Haines Creek, I quote John Calvin. As a matter of fact, I think I might have quoted John Calvin when you were there. Um, but we're never going to, I'm never going to like, you know, have John Calvin's picture in our church. Uh, mm. I think that would horrify the man. Um, and I also think it's, you know, I think church history, the way the way God has given, the way that God has constructed history in linear time, uh, in, in the work of redemption, and salvation and the way the old Testament and the the new covenant works and the way that the old Adam and the new Adam, the way that the the seamless plan of God in eternity leads us to understand that God wants us to learn from the past. Mm. Um, There is intentionality there. How many times does he point as he talked to Israel and go, remember what I did this? Remember, I'm the God who did this. I mean, it's, it's inextricable from the Bible, the, the fact that God wants us to learn from what has happened in the past. And I think we can learn from John Calvin's life. Um, my problem is I run in a lot of theological circles where people care more to talk about what he wrote and apply it through their own lens than really understanding the man himself and what he mm-hmm. meant. Um, and I think that's where the job of the historian begins. Um, yes, but, um, you know, I, I, think, uh, we, I, we talked about this in lot last podcast, whenever they asked, um, they asked old, uh, Westminster professor, I forgot his name now, um, Truman, Carl Truman, when he, when he, uh, interviewed for his job, they said, you're stuck on a desert Island. Who are you going to have? You only got, you only get to hang out with one person. You want to hang out with John Calvin or Martin Luther? And he goes, and he didn't skip a beat. He said Martin Luther, uh, and I think I'd say the same thing. Um, <laughs> if you had, if you had to stick me with the writings of Luther or Calvin, I would pick Calvin. If you had to stick me with the personality of Luther or Calvin, I would pick Luther.
0: Mm. Um,
1: that is, that's hands down. But that's just me.
0: Well, that's probably because even though we're Baptists, at least we know we could have a have a beer with Luther. So <laughs>
1: um,
0: let's sort of get into the writings though uh, a little bit, because I think along with the misconception of, you know, or at least the the grand sort of generalization that Calvin was a stoic, which in some senses he was, but in others he wasn't. But I think the other big obvious misconception uh, is the fact that this, <laughs> the uh, acronym of TULIP is unique to Calvin himself.
1: Here we go.
0: And uh, yeah, let's get into it, boy. So is, um, this,
1: is this where we make the transition from Calvin to
0: Calvinists? <laughs> I think so. And okay. th- it should be noted uh, from the outset that I do not identify myself as a Calvinist in the sense that I ascribe to TULIP uh, or any of the other five things you want to throw out there. But I think there is this misconception that calvin was you know writing out this acronym and this is what we have now and i I feel like a lot of people believe that and i feel like uh i think that has somewhat denigrated how we should look at calvin because uh now all we know is this thing called tulip instead of the institutes which more fully represent what Calvin, I think, believed. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, what what would you say about that? Why shouldn't we associate Tulip with Calvin?
1: Well, for one, Tulip was defined at the Senate of Dort, which was held 40 to 50 years after Calvin's death. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's Dortian. It's um, doesn't it doesn't mean. And of course, we're going to get into this later. It doesn't necessarily mean that Calvin didn't uphold those things. Calvin definitely upheld four out of the five. Um, the The debate is whether he upheld the fifth. Um, I, I debate sometimes whether he did or not. I, Paul Helm. Uh, there's a book called From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. It's on definite atonement. Uh, they gave it out to fr- they gave it out for free to everybody who came to T4G like four years ago, yeah. um, and Paul Helm had a great argument. I thought was that Paul Helm was just being honest because Paul Helm, being a very very staunch Calvinist, I think he had one of the best uh, cases for Calvin's relationship with limited atonement. I think he said that it's not that Calvin ever explicitly expounded it in the way that his descendants did in the way that we conceive of it today but his teachings were never inconsistent with it um, and uh, some you know like for example my uh, there's some guys who I know that think that's just a bunch of hogwash what in, what in the world does that mean um, it, it just we apply categories to Calvin that Calvin may never really have ever used. Mm. Um, now, for example, from heaven, he came in, Or Sorry, uh, there's a book that I was forced to read in seminary that I didn't really enjoy. Um, it was from the John 316 conference. It's called Whomsoever Will. It's a bunch of um, non-Calvinists and Armenians who got together and wrote a book on why uh, Calvinism's wrong. And uh, I thought the only chapter worth reading was the one uh, that basically asked whether John Calvin upheld limited atonement. And uh, I honestly, I still don't even know. I, I, I think John Calvin did. I just, what I know for sure is that John Calvin didn't articulate it in the way that we think of it. I, I just, his his mind was so biblical that I just don't think he even went into certain categories that we do, mm-hmm. uh, like for example, like and we're not going to get into this, but infralapsarian and superlapsarian I mean, I'm sure as heck no, but he wasn't talking about that. I mean, he wasn't. His mind was strictly on what does the Bible say. So, for instance, um, you know, when it says in Matthew chapter one that um, you know he's Emmanuel and he's come to die for the sins of his people, um, for his people. His people. um, I think Calvin would say, well, yeah, it's his people. It's an elect people. He's come as the Lamb to die for his people. Um, You know, but then again, he said, you know, when he says that he's kind of here, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. you know, I think Calvin would point to the universality of the gospel and how he's bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I don't know that Calvin... Calvin never espoused general atonement uh, in the way that we conceive of it today. Um, but anyway, I, we can get back to that later. But I, I think that... Um, I believe Calvin did believe in some form of limited atonement. I, I do believe that. But the, going back to your question... Um, I think that we can't apply Tulip to Calvin because Calvin would never have – well, one, he he just didn't develop that, and two, uh, unconditional election, for instance, is – you know, we can definitely take it to the bank that he he affirmed uh, total depravity, unconditional election, that he affirmed irresistible grace, that he affirmed uh, perseverance of the saints. Those are things that 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 are just basic um, to any to Calvin's theology, to Calvinist's theology. Uh, I think the real the real one that's up for grabs is limited atonement. And uh, I think also um, there's been arguments that I think is good, which is, you know, people will say uh, that Calvin often spoke in limited terms, but yet he would make gospel calls. He was very evangelistic. And so mm. when you listen to his sermons, he say, whoever comes, you know, there's room that God has room um, that, you know, that he will receive any sinner." And people will go, see, he believed in unlimited atonement and I don't think, I'd say not so fast there, I think that Calvin deferred oftentimes, what I know is this, Calvin often used very uh, open, general evangelistic language simply because Calvin held many times to the fact that he doesn't know who the elect are. Hmm. Um, And that's if, and that's my problem with a lot of limited atonement guys who can't make an evangelistic appeal uh, or don't know how to invite sinners and tell people that if they come and turn from their sins that they'll be accepted. If, they, if you can't reconcile your limited atonement view with, with an evangelistic Calvinism, uh, then you need to get a new doctrine of limited atonement. Uh, because because Calvin didn't struggle at all. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have said that Calvin was inconsistent, that he would he held to a limited atonement view, but yet he would he would make an open call to sinners. And I would think, and I'd just push back on that and say, if Calvin were in the room right now, he'd say, "You don't know who the elect are." Uh, he would claim ignorance. Calvin at one time said, "You can't peek behind the curtain." <laughs> uh, meaning we can only go so far into the mind of God. We have to let God be God. And so mm-hmm. your job as a pastor and as a preacher is not to know who the elect are. We don't know who the elect are. Your job is to preach the gospel. That's right. Um, and Calvin was a huge proponent of that. Um, and so some people will go, well, that just doesn't make sense then because you can't have limited atonement. You can't have a sincere gospel call if you have limited atonement because you don't know if anybody's. No, and Calvin would say, yeah, you do, because you know anybody who turn, turns away from their sin and believes in Jesus is going to be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, and people have accused, like, for example, Charles Spurgeon of that. People will say Spurgeon was too, that he was so staunchly limited atonement but yet made these hugely general invitations and and people go, see, he he was in, he was in, uh, inconsistent. He would, he he didn't apply his soteriology and Spurgeon would say, look, you don't get to decide who the elect are. Um, and so, uh, uh, I think getting back and we, you may ask that, uh, this may be another question that you have is, you know, what's, what's another, what's a misrepresentation of Calvinism, um, and I think one of the mis- misrepresentations of Calvinism is the fact that we are deeming Calvinists have already predetermined who the elect are and who the elect aren't. That's just that's just wrong. Uh, no Calvinist I know knows who the elect are and who they aren't other than the people that believe in Jesus and they they are the elect. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of people think Calvinists go around like, hey, I'm saved or I'm the elect and you're not. Um that's, that's no. Uh, it, it, t- doctrine of total depravity and unconditional election is designed by God uh, to humble you severely. You have nothing to claim for your own. It is completely by grace. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and, and I think the other one is that people misunderstand. I think a lot of people, honestly, non-Calvinists believe that Calvinists believe in the doctrine of uh, eternal justification. And what I think, what I mean by that is, I think that a lot of non-Calvinists misunderstand Calvinism and think that Calvinists believe people are saved from eternity. They're not saved from eternity. They're 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 elected from eternity. Um, there, it is not unconditional salvation. It is unconditional election, and the difference is salvation is still conditional upon faith. Unconditional election is unconditional. Okay. Salvation is still conditional on faith, and what I mean by conditional, because if you're if you're if you're any kind of uh, orthodox Christian, you're going wait a minute. There's no conditions to faith, and I don't mean that faith is the efficient cause of salvation. I just mean that it is impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews. Um, it is. It's what I mean is faith is always attending salvation. Um. And so, what I mean by that, I think it's very important for people to clear. If we're gonna, if we're gonna get rid of these these mischaracterizations of Calvinism, we need to start with the fact that Calvinists at no time have ever claimed that people can be saved without believing in Jesus. Mm. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't. Uh, I had to believe in Jesus. I didn't. I didn't come out of the womb already believing. I had to go ahead and believe. It's my obligation and my duty to believe and repent of my sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was not. Saved. I was not justified by faith from eternity. I was justified in the moment that I placed my faith in Jesus. I was I was elected from eternity by God. Well, I mean that's pretty dogmatic. How do you know that? Because I believed in Jesus, <laughs> uh, and now I don't. And now I know that it wasn't from myself. Mm. Um, that is Calvinism. Mm. The, Calvinism is nothing nothing more than then I think Charles Spurgeon would say that Calvinism is nothing more than giving God credit for every step of salvation. Mm.
2: That's all it is.
1: Um, The only reason, as I'm kind of alluding back to what I said earlier about limited atonement, the only reason I'm always finicky about limited atonement is because, my goodness, if you're reading your Bible, there are just some texts, if we're being honest, there are some texts you got to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And you got to reconcile them. And if you're a Calvinist, you have to preach 1 Timothy two four.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> you've got to preach it. Don't act like it's not there. And uh, if you're an Armenian, you got to preach Romans 9. Mm. Get over it.
2: <laughs> it's, in the,
1: it's in the Bible. <laughs> reconcile it. Be humble about it. Um, and uh, that's why I just, I, you know... Now, people ask me sometimes. They'll go, "Hey, are you a pre-millennialist or a millennialist?" And I'll go, "What time of the What time of the What day of the week is it?" <laughs> um, and i say that facetiously. Obviously, I'm. I mean, I've, I'm I'm millennial, but I, you know, sometimes I'll read a good book or a chapter, or an article, and be like, "Oh man, I don't know." <laughs> Um, I've, I'm so darn flexible with eschatology sometimes, but with limited atonement, I'm definitely not as flexible, um, but we can get, in, get into this later. Um, um, I think that there is some merit to the idea that uh, the blood of Christ is both sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect.
0: Well, I, th- I think, I'm glad you were um, mentioning that about, you know, sort of the... Ev- evangelistic Calvinism. I think that's a good way to put it because I think there as a non Calvinist, there is this sort of general sense that, you know, oh, oh man, those Calvinists, they don't, they don't believe in evangelism. They don't preach the gospel. They only
1: preach to the elect and all that kind of those silly things. Well, hold on. Let me stop you there. What you said is right. I like that. And, and, and well, I like the fact that you're building up this caricature that people have, because <laughs> I'm telling you right now, my goodness, we talked about this before. If we want to go, do you do people really want to go down the list for all the all the all the saints, all the Hall of Fame missionaries we have in the church who were Calvinists? Yeah, exactly. Don't don't even go there. I mean, my goodness. I mean, it's just people. Oh my gosh, I love the look on ba- old Baptists' face whenever I tell them William Carey was a Calvinist. That just it just blows their mind. Uh, or, they just I mean, or that when you say that Spurgeon. Said probably from the pulpit that Calvinism was the gospel. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they just—I mean—they think that they people uh, mischaracteri- mischaracterizations <clears throat> abound, and they abound because we are so apathetic that we would rather read articles that uh, Fox News wrote and mm. uh, and that Christian get get our get our information <laughs> from Christianity Today, which is nothing wrong with that, but rather than going to the sources and the people themselves and actually garnering and, and collecting um, informed opinions about the things that we believe. Yeah. Well, I, I think
0: what it does is I, I think knowing that Calvinists are obviously evangelistic and uh, just reading a lot of, you know, Calvinist uh, Christian figures from the past will let you you'll realize that very quickly. But I think as someone who is, as I've said, is a non-Calvinist, I think this whole, uh, not to make it a non-issue, but this whole sort of debate around lim- all these sorts of things, limit et cetera, etc., cetera, not I just think it's funny um, that it has distracted so many people, uh, for, just like you said, from what they are supposed to be doing. So instead of preaching the gospel we are academics in a room debating the the validity of limited atonement or unlimited atonement and i think just what you said is that's not our job and like calvin even said himself we can't peek behind that curtain and that's not our mission our mission is to preach the gospel to every creature and to baptize and disciple those creatures after we have preached the gospel to them and i think that getting mired in a debate over these things known as tulip has greatly detrimented some people. And I think it's, it's unfortunate um, for me to see that, that it's, that it's still such a, I would say pervasive thing among some Christian circles that it's, uh, it's, even though we, I, I mean, I haven't come across it recently as people are like debating it heavily, but, um, I just think it's it's sad that some people um, still get mired and lost in that instead of getting lost in what <laughs> they should, which is the grace of the gospel. So, anyways,
1: no, you're you're you are touching on something that is very near and dear to my heart, and that is um,
2: keeping
1: the gospel message. Unadulterated and Mm. keeping it as simple as I believe that the scriptures convey it to be. Um, But I also think a couple things. Calvinists can really irritate me. (laughs) Um, I'm glad you said it. (laughs) Well, I've never, I mean, I don't know that I've ever read. I mean, I, you, you know how much I've written. I mean, I you've written more than I have, but you know, of all people, how much I've read, I, I, how much I've put out there on my blog. And have I ever had the name Calvinist or Calvinism in any of them? I don't think I have.
0: I don't think um, so. Unless and you're think,
1: explicitly talking about it. But I don't think so. Yeah. I've ta- I mentioned it, but, um, uh, I mean, how can you not mention it in today's, you know, today's church climate? Um, but I, I think that the reason I don't throw out that word. By the way, I've never taught tulip in any of my churches. That <laughs> I've never taught tulip once. But I also want to understand. I want you to understand me when I say, just because I don't teach tulip, doesn't mean that I'm not teaching and affirming those doctrines. I just think because there is so much hyper reaction and so much volatile language and so much sensitivity around the issue. I don't capitulate to, to single terms. I don't allow, like when someone goes, Hey, are you a Calvinist or not? Well, well, Hey, let me tell you, let's, I believe that we're, and then I, then I kind of go into it. I don't go yes or no, because Mm. I'm at that point. I'm just, I'm just, um, at that point I'm playing on their court. (laughs) and i'm 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 playing around with whatever misconceptions or uh wounds they have from whatever they've heard um i mean i've sat there as i'm sure you have and i've heard a preacher go down total depravity and unconditional election and evangelism and uh the simple gospel and go down a calvinist just the, down the row with calvinist doctrines and then never ever say the word calvinism and people give him an amen mhm <laughs> And the reason is, is because he stuck to scripture. And I just, I, what I'm, what I qualify tulip is I don't teach those. One, because I feel like you need to start with the gospel and it is that simple, but doesn't mean that tulip is, I think it's, I think it's worth mentioning. Tulip is definitely not (laughs) anti-scriptural. Um, I see all those doctrines in the Bible. The problem is, um, as you said earlier, we can allow that preconceived system to uh, overly uh, cloud um, and and kind of um, kind of muddy our uh, our view of the simple gospel. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll say this: I don't I don't call them I don't call tulip Calvinism. I just call them the doctrines of grace. That's all they are to me. That's what they've been called historically. The doctrines of grace. That's what I call them. What can? El- what else can you? What else can the? What else can the love of God be when you start out with T? Total depravity. You can't do anything. <laughs> That's the grace of God. You have nothing left other than that. <laughs> if someone tells me right now that total depravity is unscriptural, I have. I- I'm going to take them right to. I mean, pick. pick. I mean, I would take them first to Romans 3. Um, not only all have sinned and fallen short of glory, of God, not only that the wages of sin is death in, 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 uh, in Romans 6, but Romans 3, there's no one good. No, not one. We've all gone astray. Um, we all want evil. You know, John 3. Why did we stray away from the light? Because we love our sin. Mm. Um I mean time after time God is pointing us to the fact that we are not only depraved we are spiritually impotent and we are unable to come to him. It is purely by his grace and then once you've got total depravity down there's no way you can have anything else other than unconditional election. There's no there's no way. You can't come to him. You're dead. Um that's my big that's my big thing with uh you know, Armenians is what do you do when Paul says you're dead in your trespasses? What do you do with that? I mean, do you think that's figurative? I mean, in some sense, I suppose it is, because you're you know you have a heartbeat. But you know, we are slaves to sin. We are dead in our sins. Slavery, dead. Slavery, dead. I mean, all this this consistent language that Jesus Christ is using himself. Even the Apostle Paul is consistently pointing us to the to the un. A shamed, blatant, obvious fact in Scripture, and that is, we can do nothing apart from the grace of God. Hmm. And that's that. That to me is just uh, that's where you got to start. We can do nothing. I have sinned so much. I have even sinning once. I am born and conceived in sin. Psalm fifty one. And and because I'm conceived in sin, I want to sin. I have an I have a disposition and a predisposition to sin. I want the wrong things, and the right things I want I want them for the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, you know, and it's talk about Hebrews four twelve. You know, the, the the word of God is is a double edged sword. It is living and active. It is piercing to this to the thoughts and tensions of the heart. That's the problem: is our thoughts and intentions are bad, even when our actions aren't. Um, and so I, I just. Sorry, I just—I uh, was just—I just became an apologist for total depravity. <laughs> you keep preaching, that's okay. But I just—that's uh, why I won't. When someone tells me, "Hey, you're not a Calvinist, are you?" Um, I'll go. Well, let's talk about grace for a second, um, and 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 put it on Paul's terms. Don't put it on Calvin's terms.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, Calvin was just writing about Paul. Um, Mm. so uh i i just want to make that point it's not that tulip is anti-scriptural at all it's just that my goodness there are so many calvinists that annoy me um there are so many out there that just my goodness go out and tell somebody about jesus go out and talk to a broken sinner before you blog um Go out and you know there's a couple sites I'm not going to name them by name. They're Facebook groups and they just they oh they annoy me to so to so so much end because they're just a little they're a little den of of hate and and just rivalry and it's it's just they do it under the guise of sharpening one another and you know but but oftentimes a lot of these Facebook groups just become. Um, you know, a, a den of, of vipers who just go after enemies together and, and behind, you know, closed doors. And, uh, but I want to say this too. i tell you, uh, if you've met a fiery Calvinist, you've met a fiery Armenian. <laughs> That's true. Let's not demonize the Calvinists, Um, cause I tell you, um, Armenians are, can bite just as hard. That is certainly true. And, uh, and and it's 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 not one group that I'm fighting against it's just uh, uh one of my favorite blogs i ever wrote just because i we was it was both near and dear to my heart and i and i just felt like it was so practical and needed for the church is hospital theology I don't know if you remember when i wrote that i do uh, it's one of my favorites by the way of yours and i i just uh i the reason I wrote it is because i went you know in a hospital no one talks about understanding tulip but they under but they do but they do talk about the gospel
2: Hmm.
1: um and and it doesn't mean tulip doesn't uh distill a lot of the the gospel truths um but if you're teaching someone tulip before you're teaching someone the gospel then that's a problem I, i
0: love that you brought up that piece because that's it truly i'm not trying to butter you up but it is one of my favorite articles of yours it reminds me, I did a podcast with Daniel Emery Price of the uh, Christ Old Fast Network. Shout out to him. Um, Lutheran! I, Lutheranism! Yeah, <laughs> I remember when we were doing that pod together. And it, Actually, I think this is probably one from one of his sermons one time. I can't remember now, but he posed the question, "You know, what if we preach to everyone as if they were dying and on their deathbed? Hmm. Because just like hospital theology and preaching to everyone like they're dying, which they are, it changes how you preach, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think it should. Because instead of, like you said, <laughs> instead of bringing them through this system of religion, you're giving them the gospel, which is what they need. Which mm-hmm. is the only thing that they need. And I think that um, more than anything else, I hope that we can leave people with that: is the fact that, you know... Yes, these doctrines and these truths are important, and they're important to be understood. And I, I guess I should say, for the record, I don't classify myself as an Armenian either. I don't really know where I fall, but that's another story we can get into later. But yeah, you're like a typical
1: Southern Baptist.
0: <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, um, that's very true. That's um, funny. But I would say that yes, all these things are super important. They're super vital for us to know and to understand, at least as much as we can. Above it all, like you said, just give people Jesus. Amen. And I I hope that we can we can do that through Calvin, through uh, talking to people about Him, and just through any other means that we have. Is just
1: give people Jesus. Amen, brother. I mean, that's if you did. I mean why do you get into the ministry if you don't want to just, if you don't just love people and you want mm-hmm. to see, and you want to love them enough to give them the greatest news in the world? I mean, that's right. Uh, I think that's become the bedrock of my life, your life, and really the, the, the foundation of our friendship, which is why I, why I know you and I are going to be friends for a long time. <laughs> that's very true. Now I will say this. I, I am a Calvinist. Um, I am a I am a five point Calvinist after the mold of Andrew Fuller, <laughs> and uh, we can get into that later, perhaps another podcast. I don't know, but um, I do believe that God has designed the extent of the atonement. I think I think we need to understand, but in order to understand the extent of the atonement, we need to understand the intent of the atonement. And um, I just think that my reading of scripture does not prohibit me from making an open gospel um, call and mm. does not prohibit me from making an open um, invitation to sinners, a genuine, authentic call to repent and believe in their sins and that, they, that Jesus will receive them into his kingdom. I, that nothing, nothing in my theology prevents me from making that um that's bad as my my worry about calvinism if it's misunderstood when it, when it when it has a detriment to our practical preaching sure um but I I, I I affiliate as a calvinist um i don't i don't wear it i don't i don't have a 1689 tattoo uh, <laughs> i don't i don't have a i don't have a uh, my wife is making. I thought, I thought I you did on your chest or something. I know, man. Well, I've got a picture of Calvin right right on my buttocks. <laughs> so, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know who would be on that, on that arm, man. Edwards. Edwards, man, Edwards wow. is going on the bicep. Would. <laughs> Edwards, the resolution. <laughs> Old resolve, the resolution. I resolve to pump iron. <laughs> resolution 960.
2: That's so funny. Um,
1: no, uh, I yeah, I uh, don't intend on ever getting a tattoo, and I don't intend on it if I did to ever be uh, John Calvin or um, any theologian. But <laughs> well, we probably um,
0: dived, dived off into a little area we probably shouldn't go. Um, but sort of as we wrap this okay. up, I, just as sort of like a closing, closing statement, I guess we could say, if you could sort of reorient people's um, preconceived notions regarding John Calvin the man and the things that first come to mind when they think of him, what would you want people to think of or know?
1: Um, one, if you want the best summary of Reformation thought and Reformation theology, other than picking up the Institutes and reading it cover to cover. I would read B.B. Warfield called Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will, the Manifesto of the Reformation. The other work is John Calvin's Letter to Satellito, It's a lot shorter than Bondage of the Will and it is in my mind the best summary and the best distillation of John Calvin's Reformation theology. Letter to Satolato. What was happening at that time was John Calvin had been banished from Geneva and uh, basically things weren't going great and The Catholic Church, uh, Cardinal Satellito, had published a work against Protestantism and against Geneva. And basically, they needed somebody to come back and rally the troops and go against this guy. And they appealed to Calvin, who was at that time in Strasbourg. And they said, John, we need your help. And in my mind, I'm picturing something like John Calvin like putting on his boots and going, I'm going back. (laughs) <laughs> um no I don't know that he gone back at that point but he did uh he did pen a uh, letter to Satellito um and that is in my mind I think is a fantastic work um because John Calvin is basically making his uh chief defense boiling down his most basic thoughts about why Protestantism is better than Catholicism um so one I would I, if you want to you want to hear if you want to hear some of his most precise uh, and succinct thoughts um, and, and something that I feel like represents the man, John Calvin, well, uh, that would be it. I think another thing about John Calvin would probably be um, one of his best analogies that he uses. If you if you read Calvin, both in his commentaries uh and in his institutes and even his sermons, I haven't read as many of his sermons. I have read some, but I, I can't, I don't really understand. I don't know um, what, what you'd find there. I imagine it'd be um, just sublime theology. Yeah. But I can say that my favorite analogy that he uses, Calvin is a big fan of analogies. Um, he thought that uh, because of the way that he viewed conversion, and he did emphasize conversion. Um, because of the way that he viewed salvation coming through the mind and heart, you turning to God, both, both in your mind and in your soul and your will, because of the way he viewed that, he, be- he believed that people needed to understand the gospel before they could ever come and turn and want it. Um, which I think is valuable. I mean, how many people really? How many people do you know, Brad, who think they believe in the gospel and love sure. it and have all these emotions, and then they really what they think they know is just really a just an in, incomplete picture of the gospel. Yeah. Um, Calvin believed that we need to come and part of the pastor's number one job, part of the preacher's number one job, is to first be a teacher and that people cannot come and love something with their hearts that they know not with their own mind. And because he loved analogies, um, he thought that they were great tools to use for people in understanding the gospel. And his favorite analogy he uses, in my mind, is the the labyrinth. Um, The labyrinth, of course, is uh, something that would have existed uh, a lot in perhaps... uh, you know, town squares or, or around a castle. But, you know, in medieval era, the, the labyrinth was more or less a maze, an intricate maze that was made out of, you know, shrubbery or bushes or even, you know, walls. Uh, and, and the reason he used the labyrinth so often in his writings is because he thought that the labyrinth is what he thought of as the life of someone who doesn't know Jesus. Yeah. he believed that someone who does not know God in Christ someone who cannot and does not have a relationship with um Jesus because of their own sin and their own hatred of the light that they're just lost <laughs> they're lost in an infinite maze and they have no way of coming out of it and I thought that was really i think that to me um really speaks to Calvin's theology because Calvin didn't just... He wasn't just some stoic, hardened, um, robotic dictator who went, y'all are saved and y'all ain't. Y'all are the elect and y'all ain't. No, he he, he had compassion on the lost because he thought they're lost. Hmm. Uh, they literally are blind. They cannot find their way to God. And, and, and what he found is that he thought his ministry was leading people out of a gigantic maze. And if they could not be found, if they could not be claimed with the gospel, then that they were, they were, they were waltzing into their own peril and destruction. Mm. Um, and so I think that, 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 you know, kind of rounding it back to what you said about, you know, he was a pastor and, uh, if he didn't, if you read his uh, writings, he 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 made time to explain the gospels in extra biblical ways. They weren't they weren't unbiblical, and they certainly weren't anti biblical, um, but they were extra biblical. He didn't mind speaking extra biblically when it was supporting and supplementing what he found in scripture. Um, and I thought that, I think that that just speaks to his pastoral heart. Um, he was certainly flawed person, very reticent to speak about himself, sometimes to the point of appearing almost like you know a misanthrope um, but at other times, I believe that he really showed his pastoral heart, maybe not in the way that Luther did, um but in the best way that a pastor can, and that 's in bringing the gospel clearer and clearer so that people um had no reason not to understand it mm. um, and I, and that's that's really what I want to be said of my ministry um, is that Abby conveyed the gospel not just simply but clearly um, and uh, brevity and clarity he said he wrote one time a letter to a friend and he said I, I, he believed in brevity and clarity those were the two things he believed when he when he preached that were the best things mm. And you see that. He did not just stammer on. He did not he wasn't a fan of just filling up pages with his own writings and, and, and kind of uh amusing himself with his own genius. He was someone who believed that if something had to be said, it should be said in the most concise, in the most precise way. Um and, and I and I think uh I think Calvinism, the legacy of Calvinism should be in that mold, that we mm. should not just poor pages and blogs and articles that are so long that no one understands them. Um, we can convey very deep truths in the way that Calvin did in a very clear way, because if we're not teaching people these things, um, what we're doing is really just, you know, pantering to our own, uh, um, you know, pampering ourselves with our own, you know, looking at ourselves for how much we know. And I think uh, the, the point of knowledge for for Calvin was knowledge of God and knowledge of man. One fed the other. And I, I think that uh, probably the one thing I would want people to know is he was someone who loved to teach. Um, and I, I would love the same to be said of me. Mm. Well, Abi,
0: I really appreciate your time tonight. I think this was very beneficial. I, don't, I Even if it's not for someone else, it was beneficial to me. So uh, I appreciate your insight, and uh, I couldn't have done it without you. And I hope we uh, hope we made some sort of um, some sort of headway into this. And I think that we did. But uh, thanks for your time, thanks for your friendship, and uh, I look forward to doing this again. With who knows what else we'll talk about next time.
1: <laughs> Maybe the tattoo that you have. Oh boy, (laughs) yeah, old old Edwards going on the bicep. I don't know. I uh, I'm thinking about having Edwards riding a Harley or something (laughs) on on my arm.
0: Brother, it's been it's
1: been great. Thank you for having me. Um, I can't wait for the Luther one to come out, the Calvin one to come out. These are, um, you know, I I I just think that uh, what you're doing here with these podcasts is just trying to meet people where they are, um, Mm. contextualize the gospel, both, uh, you know, in word uh, and in video. And um, I I think this is a neat tool. And I'm I'm thankful that you, uh, you know, honored that you would have me again as a as a as a guest.
0: Thank you. And uh, you're always welcome back. And I'm sure you're going
1: to be back soon. (laughs) Well, hey, and if I get one, if I get a tattoo of Jonathan Edwards, you're getting (laughs) you're getting a tattoo on your back called Bob Jones University, the Fighting Fundamentalists. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh, man.
0: Probably over my dead body. But oh, nobody. boy.
1: Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll talk later about that
0: then. Hey, thanks, Avi. Good to see you, brother. And thanks again to Avi for coming on the show. Uh, this was a great podcast. Make sure you read the blog notes for this show and check out all the great resources you can find there in the links and uh that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded though. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you just heard, be sure to give the show a follow on Twitter. The handle is at underscore ministry minded. Uh so give that handle a follow. You can also subscribe to this show on iTunes and on SoundCloud and on Google Play. And you can also to follow us on YouTube. Um and if you're feeling really generous today, I which I hope you are, uh leave me a short review in iTunes. That will go a long way to making shows like that this continue to happen. But thanks again to the Christian Standard Bible for sponsoring this show. And thank you again, as always, for listening and commenting and subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode. Classics. Oh,